0: SQL Down Under is a podcast for professionals working in the SQL Server community. SQL Server is a trademark of Microsoft Corporation. Opinions expressed during the podcast are individual opinions and may not reflect the opinions of SQL Down Under or of Microsoft Corporation. Introducing show number 10 with guest Graham Simpson. our guest today is Graham Simpson. Graham is the author of Data Modeling Essentials, third edition, and one of the best known authorities internationally on data modeling and data management. He was a keynote speaker at the Australian Dharma Conference in Canberra and has previously been the keynote at American and European conferences. Has a reputation for challenging conventional wisdom and is another reputation as an entertaining speaker. Graham was the founder and CEO of Consultancy Simpsian Bowles and Associates. He sold the company in 1999 and now divides his time between data modeling, masterclasses around the world, research and consulting. So, welcome, Graham. Thanks, Greg. I'm not sure but I'm going to be an you...
1: entertaining speaker. <laughs> can,
0: can I get you first up just to uh, give us some background as to, I uh, suppose, how you got to be involved with data and data modeling and uh, how, how you get to be where you are today?
1: Well, it goes back a very long time. I've spent uh, about 25 years or so working backwards, I guess, through the systems development life cycle. I started off as a computer operator and went into programming and at that stage, uh, database management systems were fairly new on the scene and it seemed like an interesting thing uh, to get involved with. So I spent, I was with uh, what was then Colonial Mutual. I spent some time um, on the database administration team eventually becoming the DBA there and being involved in quite a big project. And... While I was a DBA, I had to work with data modellers, and um, it wasn't always a happy experience, so I felt (laughs) that if I I couldn't beat them, I should probably join them and learn something about that part of things. I became very interested in data modelling. About Mm. that point, I went out and started my own consultancy, um, which gradually grew. That was something involved in Associates over the years, and I found myself sort of moving back from data modelling to doing data management, which was the the bigger picture, um, to information systems planning, to business process design, business process re-engineering, um, and ultimately, in the last three or so years that I was with the consultancy, most of the consulting work that I was still doing because much of my time was in management, most of the consulting work I was doing was actually at the business level, um, this is an IT component, but some it's just being um, straight out business strategy, business planning. Then after I sold the company, um, I was on a non-compete clause for a while, and I decided it was a good time to go back to university and do some research, and I decided to go back to my roots and get involved in uh, in data modelling again. So for the last three or four years, I've been uh, doing research in data modelling, I've been teaching it, um, rediscovering some of the things that uh, I thought I knew about that subject. Does that give you a,
0: a bit of a picture? Yeah, indeed, that, that's really good. The um, Actually, uh, I must have been actually just listening to you there, I was kind of intrigued uh, thinking back at the... Uh the, the way people used to work, uh, moving across from operations a reason, uh, originally back, and there was always a career path into programming, and it just sort of struck me um, listening to that 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 seems to be a, a I suppose, a com- uh, an area that just doesn't happen anymore, and uh, pe- where people tend to be uh, going directly into specialist programming type roles. And uh, do, well, do you think that's a thing. was a good thing or a bad thing?
1: Well. I'm less worried about people going straight into specialist programming roles, um, although I have to say that when I went from operations to programming, I knew stuff that the other programmers didn't know. I think the thing that I knew was I could see those tapes as they were in those days turning, and I knew what my program was making happen, as it were. So I was able to root what I was doing in the concrete, and all through my career I have realised that people in general are not very good abstract thinkers. And unless they've got something concrete to, to refer back to... Um, they often do some pretty silly things. Um, yeah. the, the relevance of that to, to, to data modelling is I personally think that a background in database design is is fundamental to being a good data modeller. When people say to me, yeah. oh, we've just got this guy from the business to come and join us and he or she's going to be a, a wonderful data modeller, what sort of training should we give them? I'll say, go make them, um, I shouldn't uh, shouldn't say access database, but uh, it wouldn't matter Get them to develop some simple databases and get a feeling for what these things really are, so that whenever you're doing your data modelling, you can see the concrete manifestation of what you've done. I think we might have wandered off yeah. the topic a bit, but um
0: yeah, at school,
1: I, <laughs> I, I think I think bread, I think bread in a career is a wonderful thing. I think that I've learnt more being away from data modelling and particularly being away from data management than um, than I learnt when I was inside them. Or at least it's given me another perspective on them. Uh, particularly yeah. i might add on data management. But, yeah, and, and I think that probably the area that's been most important for me and has been not so much the data modelling but the data management stuff, where mm. my experience with information systems planning and with working on uh, strategic planning with managers convinced me that uh, a lot of the theories of data management are just not workable in most organisations, which, uh, let's face it, a lot of people outside data management would be pretty, fairly quick to agree with.
0: Yeah, in fact, I think one of the things that quite intrigues me is uh, always the the big disconnect between the uh, the uni sort of a uh, university sort of modelling of how things would work and 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 reality. I mean, if I if I, I take simple examples, like I, I see people that would say model an invoice, and maybe in that they'll have a product code, but they would never have like a description of a product, for example, because they would say, hey, that's off in the in the product table, but they they never think in terms of historical things so you know it's kind of like you know down the track the product description changes but you don't want to look at an old invoice and suddenly see you you've now sold a different product to what you did back then you know and so there's the whole get getting your head around you know also a historical perspective i think on on, on how models work
1: Yeah, look, I think think there's a a number of issues that you sort of touched on there in terms of the disconnect between the universities and practice. And one of them is a straightforward teaching disconnect, if you like, but teaching largely works with very simple examples. And I think we all know that once you actually get out there in the real world, the examples aren't so simple. And the difficulty, I think, with a lot of teaching is it, it doesn't make you aware that the problems that you get out there in the real world will be so complicated that the techniques that you have been taught will not be sufficient to cope with them. And and I think, you know, you you can learn coding, for example, and to a certain extent, and perhaps I'm being glib here, but to a certain extent, the problems that you strike in the real world are an extrapolation of, the the, you know, you've learned the, the techniques, and, okay, you've got to apply it to something bigger and it may be a bit tougher, but the basic techniques are still sound, whereas... My belief is that the way that data modelling is taught, those techniques will actually not carry you very far at all in the real world. You actually have to learn completely new and different techniques and different ideas. I think that's a real, that's a real mm. problem. We don't, te- we don't really teach data modelling at university. We don't teach database design at universities. We teach a knowledge of the syntax and the conventions, and it's like teaching somebody uh, the rules of chess and saying we'll go out and play. There's a, a lot of work that still needs to be done.
0: <laughs> That's that's good. So so, how important is data modeling in your view?
1: Well,
0: as a separate discipline. Okay.
1: Yeah. Well, okay. That 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 qualifi- that was that qualification that you gave <laughs> as a separate discipline was what I was just sort of hanging on. Let, let, let me answer the broader question first. How important is data modeling? I think the data model is the single most important part of a. Data-centric information system specification. So okay, if you're, if you're writing games or something like that, then the world may be different. But if you're talking about most business applications which tend to be built around a fairly substantial amount of data and a bunch of programs whose job it is to put it in, take it out, manipulate it and so forth, then my view is, let's just go down a level, the data structure is the single most important contributor to the quality of the design of that particular system. Now, mm. The question then is, and then the reason I would, I don't know if I'd like to sort of push that one too hard, but I think we all know that when we work with bad data structures, we're constantly coding around them, we're constantly having to deal with the ugliness, and if you deal with yeah. a very good data structure, then program code tends to sit nicely into place, and you sort of write back to Michael Jackson and so on and those things. Yeah. Okay, the question is, where do those data structures come from? And I would argue that the logical specification of those data structures, what you see as distinct from table spaces, indexes, physical performance considerations, that that task of coming up with those is data modelling. Now, we then get to the question of, is it a separate discipline? But I would say whoever does that, it is arguably the single most important component of an information system spec. Yeah. Would you like me to lead into who does it? (laughs)
0: Yes, indeed. Let's talk about that. So who who is the best person to do this?
1: Okay. well, my my argument is that the skills required to be a good physical database designer and the skills required to be a good data modeler are relatively distinct. There is some overlap in the Mm -hmm. middle, for sure, but broadly, the data modeler needs to be somebody who understands A, the business, and B, logical data structures. The database um, technician needs to be a person who understands the database management first and, if you like, logical data structures second. So they meet at this logical data structure space, but the DBA is essentially um, a software-based person and I would say that um, a SQL Server DBA should be able to move comfortably from one business to another and still transfer their skills fairly quickly, whereas... Um, a data modeler should be able to move from one DBMS to another and transfer, and transfer their skills fairly quickly. Where the data modeler has mm-hmm. more trouble is moving from one business to another, where the database technician or DBA has more trouble is moving from one DBMS to another. So the nature yeah. of the skills are a technical skill versus a business skill. That said, I don't think that the jobs are so big that they can't reside in one person. Mm-hmm. So I think it's possible for a person to be an expert at both Um I mean, I consider myself an expert data modeler, and there are other things in my life that I also consider myself expert as. So, so, the, at, so there's there's room in someone's life to be both, but I don't think that um, either party should assume they have the other skills without having them develop them in a professional sense.
0: Yeah, I think that's the case in all areas of, uh, of IT things. I mean, endlessly I, I see uh, you know, people who, for example, would think, yes, I can build websites, also think they're a graphic designer, and you know, they're usually not. <laughs> and, Absolutely. Yeah, I mean, and they will, they, will and... Produce,
1: they will produce websites at some level of quality or adequacy, which in some cases yeah. may well be fit for purpose. But I'll tell you what, my, my sense would be with that person that if you put them on a one-week course on, on graphic design or even a one-day course on graphic design, they're probably going to go from knowing you know, 10% to knowing 30% and actually yes. increase their um, their competence hugely. And I'd make the same mm. comment about a DBA, for example, who is involved in coming up with the logical data structures because there's no data modeler around, that if they know the basic principles of data modelling, they're going to avoid making some of the some of the gross bloopers that um, that uh, inexperienced people do.
0: Yeah. Well, I sp- actually, that's a, probably a good thing to, to talk about, is what do you think are the, the, the most common gross bloopers that people do make?
1: Uh, Bad choice of primary key. There you go. Mm
0: -hmm.
1: Number one, the the number one fault across databases that I've seen in my life would be inappropriate choice of primary key. And that would typically come down to an unstable primary key, to trying to identify something using um, data which may change over time. Now, it doesn't mean that I'm putting my hand up and say every key must be a surrogate key. I think well, yep. I don't agree with that for a start. But mm-hmm. inappropriate choice, bad bad design, um, would have caused more problems in databases and more fatal problems, if you like, more more problems that cause the thing to be retired early or whatever, uh, than anything else I've ever seen. Um, yeah. I see lots of other problems too, which I can start listing, and, and some of them come mm-hmm. from novices and some of them come from experts. They're almost
0: the see uh, on the. Um, on the thing with inappropriate choice of primary key, actually it was uh, an interesting session I sat through, uh, Joe Selko did at the um, past conference in Dallas a few weeks back. And uh, yep. uh, again, it's an area that he tends to differ very widely with a lot of people on as to what's appropriate primary keys and not. And and his view is very much, uh, he, he really doesn't like... Um, uh searching for the word but i mean a, a key that has no natural meaning in in his case he, he always tends to look for keys that that somehow relate to reality so uh and his argument is that if you have something like a good for example uh, which is a the, the ultimate example of something that is not meaningful by itself but his argument is that nobody can ever look at that and know that it's right or wrong or Anything like that. His argument is he would prefer a key, even if it involves multiple columns, you know, or whatever level, but to be something that a human can look at and say, that's actually probably right or probably wrong. Have you got thoughts there at all? Or?
1: Yeah. Um, what can I say? Um, I, I've got to be a little careful. I don't want to beat up on Joe because it may be just <laughs> how it's been interpreted or, or whatever. Um, mm. There's keys and there's identifiers, and they're not necessarily the same thing. The way that we, are, mm-hmm. we certainly just say allocating a surrogate key does not relieve us of the problem in the real world of actually distinguishing between one instance and another, and it doesn't relieve mm-hmm. us of the problem of making sure that one instance on the database corresponds to one instance out there in reality. You don't sort of magically solve the problem by giving a person a number. okay? Yeah. On the other hand, the integrity of a relational database and, and the whole way it works relies so heavily on key... We all know that the problems of the key is not unique, but yes. you get very similar... You get problems of a similar order, or very close to it, if the key is not stable. If you have to change the, name, you know, the, the value of a primary key, then that will have to be propagated across all of the, the foreign keys where it's used, including the mm-hmm. stuff that you've archived, Otherwise, you've got to write a whole lot of code to deal with history. And I guess more fundamentally, you lose the idea that when a key changes, that actually means you've got a new instance. So the example I would give would be an insurance policy, and you can make a whole bunch of changes. You can change even the person's date of birth on the policy, because that was wrong in the first place. But you still have the concept that it's the same policy. But at a certain point, you say, this change isn't possible. We need to... Cancel that policy and issue another. The question is, how do you show the difference in a database? And in my view, that change of key, as it were, is your way of saying that something, is, one real-world instance has been re- replaced with another. Now, hmm. I'm not saying you shouldn't carry meaningful information. Just don't make it your primary key if it's not going to be stable.
0: I mean I think that uh, you see a lot of people would tend to use things like identity columns and things like that and I mean the the issue with that is you've then got all the management issues in terms of you know anything that's automatically numbered like that um, when you start moving things around and I must admit in uh, his session he was also saying look anything he sees where he just sees like a sequential number he he thinks it's some sort of, it's almost like a. he was saying it's almost like a throwback to some sort of you know, like an ISM file system, you know, or, or something where we're trying to sort of emulate that. But I must admit the object guys I tend to work with tend to be right at the other end of the spectrum. And, and again, things like a, a, a GUID or something like that is the sort of thing they'll use because they, they want an identifier that's stable and unique. But, you know, the fact that it doesn't relate to anything doesn't worry them at all.
1: No, I mean, I think the, the issue here is that we're not talking. In in the first instance, about relating, um, about uniquely identifying the thing in the real world, we're actually talking about uniquely identifying a row and a table, for a start, Mm. and being able to organise internally in the database the fact that everything hangs together in a comfortable way, which is not complicated to change, update, which doesn't imply when something changes, multiple updates all over the place, and so on, that keeps things neat and tidy. Mm. And and, and then you have to say, well, okay, but I need to map this number I've come up with to the instance in the real world, and I need a mechanism for that. And that might well be that I carry a value of um, some real-world identifier, and there may well be a time frame associated with that. And they're all things that we can do reasonably well within the DBMS. But within a relational structure, and uh, I won't speak to the object, guys, but within a relational structure... It relies so heavily; the whole structure is implicit in the, um, or is explicit in the primary keys and the the foreign keys. That to get, to do those badly, um, in my experience, invariably leads to to ugly coding and ultimately to premature obsolescence. So I'm I'm surprised um, to hear Joe Joe saying that, and perhaps he's um, he's simply arguing that you do need to carry this extra information that the, the surrogate key won't do it in its own right.
0: But anyway, yeah. The thing I was saying, so yeah. I mean, I, I may be slightly miss uh, or sort of para, uh, miss uh, paraphrasing what Joe was saying there, but he, he certainly was very keen on the idea of um, specific identifiers as primary keys. He was talking about um, in terms of things that were like you know physical, real world type stuff. Um, and I, I think maybe the I, I see I have seen a lot of guys in that camp where they see that. Uh, and it's also an area that uh, I must admit a lot of the university things I've seen tend tend to lean that way as well. and uh, I, I think they they're, they're sort of thinking that you know an, an identifier that isn't related to the real world is more of an implementation detail in the database rather than uh, rather than something that really forms part of the model.
1: Yeah, and I mean, that, that becomes, there's two questions in there, so let me take, take both of them. I think mm. I think with university examples in particular, they're so contrived and so simplistic that they, they're not even addressing that question. I mean, okay, if you've got university teaching that says, and we have deliberately decided to use a real-world identifier here rather than an ID, um, then then fine. But I think most of the time they just pop in, um, you know, department ID or person name or something like that without even thinking, yeah. just trying to make a simple example.
0: Um, actually, I love name, I actually, we, Chris, we had a uh, a guy apply for a job at the university who only had one name, <laughs> and um, uh, I, I always wanted him to come and work there because I was, I was wanting to see all our systems melt down, but, uh,
1: <laughs> but well, uh, well, we absolutely. didn't end up I, him. Well, well, let me say, that's a classic example, okay, of, of data modelling knowledge, if you like, that, mm. that the experienced data modeller... Brings to an organisation who's trying to put together an application that that needs to keep names, and says, okay, are you aware that sometimes people only have one name, or there's an international standard for name recording and it goes like this, etc, etc. Now, to me, this is a knowledge which data modelers need to have, and not necessarily database technicians. You know, I think mm-hmm. you can you can be an excellent database technician without knowing that, but you, but you do need if you're developing big industrial strength applications, you need someone who's able to put their hand up and say, well, you know, the standard format for name is this, but recognise that in some countries that we, you know, it's not just Christian name surname, it's family name and this, and some people have only one name and blah 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 blah, and and that that mm-hmm. to me is part of the data modelling body of knowledge. But, but let yeah. me let me just pick up this uh, this other question of maybe something like an identi- um, a primary key is really an implementation decision and therefore isn't a data modelling decision. And I think mm. that that raises a whole bunch of questions about where does data modelling stop and where does database design or, or physical database design um, start. And in almost every organisation I've worked with, there has been dispute around that boundary. Um, it is... you know. Giving advice to people about data modeling in their organization, then one of the issues I'd be saying is if you're going to divide this task, you need to have a very clear understanding of where the boundary lies. I have some views on where that boundary should be. I was about to say I'm not religious about it, I'm pretty strong on it, but I'm much, much stronger on the point that if you don't know where that boundary lies, then you're going to have problems. You're going to have a data model specify a, specifier, a Um, what the primary key is, you'll have a database administrator say, that's my responsibility to nominate that, none of the data modeler's business, override it, fail to take into account some piece of information the data modeller had when making that decision, whatever it might be. But my personal view is that primary keys are in fact a data modelling issue, at least in the first instance. There's Mm. There's a situation that my view is that the data modeler, um, whoever that person might be, and, or the data modeling role, delivers a complete logical database design, everything you see. Now, it may well be that the, da- the database technician turns around and says, that thing will never be It's not going to be, I don't mean application-wise, but speed-wise. It will be the throughput, whatever. At that point, there's a negotiation goes on about what can be done, in the same way that a builder might say to an architect, "Listen, I can't build that. You know, you asked me to do something unreasonable, or have you seen the cost of those bricks? Yeah, etc."
0: Actually, that sort of intrigues me as well. One of the things that uh, I sort of wonder about in this whole thing is that uh, a lot of the data modeling and things I see, uh, and and same with database design, is all tends to be not not particularly dynamic. Um, I suppose, you know, it tends to be more almost like what we do in programming design that used to be like a waterfall approach where you tend to design things and then build them. And it's just interesting to note that nearly all the programming seems to be more and more moving to a just, a, uh, you know, people talk about agile approaches or things where, yeah you know, often nowadays you're starting to build things well before people have any real idea about what is actually needed. And it's only when they start to see things that they start to realise the bits they haven't told you. And then I I just wonder if any of the tools we're working with, I I just look in terms of the database things, and I, I just don't see the same level of like refactoring tools and all these sort of things that we do have in the programming world now.
1: I think there's a reason for that. Okay. Um, I think let's, before we talk refactoring, let's just talk about the agile approaches and, and, and the agile approaches are descendants of the, the prototyping approaches, the RAD approaches and so forth. All those approaches that say, uh, you, know, you know what, what they say. Um, the, there's an intrinsic problem here that it's easier to change code than it is to change database structures. Now, I don't mean that yeah. it's, it's hard to reorganize a database. The problem is the amount of um, collateral damage that it causes to everybody else. And <laughs> the and that's the problem. You say, "Hey, we've, we've just found a much neater way to to, to, to do this. Uh, we'll change the shape of the database overnight, and, and there's going to be a mutiny on the part of the programmers because all their mm-hmm. code is going to be rendered, of the code is going to be rendered unworkable." So the the, the, the first thing is that, in my experience with prototyping, um, RAD, and and certainly I haven't been involved in agile um, projects, but I've had some interesting discussions with Scott Ambler, for example, who's uh, um, a bit of a leading light in that field. And, and my picture on that is, is, is the same, that you need to have a reasonably stable database design down early in the piece. Um, otherwise, the programmers are going to be working with two moving targets, that is the, uh, the business requirements as they change, and that underlying foundation. And that's usually too, you know, that's usually too many un- unknowns, too many degrees of freedom happening in the project. Um now i'm not saying that's easy but i think it's doable and it needs good data modeling skills it needs people who can build you know structures which are reasonably generic and therefore stable but at the same time are reasonably straightforward to program against um, who have good pattern knowledge in the sense that they and can start to see how something might look they've seen it before they can yeah. anticipate even though all the requirements aren't in um, but but yeah. and then we get to refactoring and it's the same sort of thing that that the, the change to the database is likely to have such um, impact elsewhere that it just makes the job harder. It just makes it a more complicated problem to tackle.
0: Do you think part of the need uh, in, in shops where there is a constant need to keep changing the model, it, it's often also just a lack of skills on the people doing the analysis and, right, and design of say, the model in my, the first place? Right. Yeah. Okay.
1: Okay, there's two there's two things that you want with a data model and um, I heard Larry English I tend to call them stability and flexibility and I thought Larry English um, was I think um, characterised him a presentation a few years ago very nicely and he said um, stability is in fact the ability to deal with new queries and so forth, new uses of the existing data um, without having to change the shape of that existing data and flexibility yeah. is the ability to accommodate new business requirements, new business data requirements with minimum pain. Okay. Now, mm-hmm. there are formal techniques you can a- use particularly or to achieve both of those things. And my, my view is, if you want to have it in one or two sentences, I think you quoted back to me recently, um, you, uh, you don't want to build rules into the data structure that are likely to change during the life of the application. Hmm. When you develop an information system, there's plenty of different places you can put rules. Pardon me lecturing here, but you can put them in the data structure, you can put them as data values, you can put them in code, or you may even have them sit outside the application. They may Hmm. be in users' heads or documented elsewhere. And the the basic rule is... If you build something in the data structure, it's going to be hard to change because people will have assumed that rule and built around it. So if you've got a rule which is is likely to change during the life of the application, put it somewhere else. And that's why you end up with table-driven applications and so on.
0: Hmm. Actually, that's sort of interesting too because, ironically, uh, again, uh, another thing in Joe's session, uh, various things coming out of that, um, but one of the things he loves to see is a whole lot of constraints um, at the column level uh, which which are probably yep. uh, I suppose sanity checks um, on columns yep. at the database level and uh, I'm just sort of interested in what you were just saying there because again that uh, it's you know is is your thought that you know maybe that shouldn't be there that that should be in a middle layer um and and because now of look- the difficulty in changing things or well, I
1: think, I think you make a you take a pragmatic look at it. Um, it doesn't have to be done on a sort of deep theoretical basis. You say, all right, if I put this constraint in at the column level, how much is that constraint going to be... You know, what will happen if that constraint changes? What is likely to be affected? And if it's self-contained at the column level, constraint of <laughs> the processing through database procedures or whatever, um, wonderful. But what's probably more likely is that that is, that is just a, a final line of defence and you're expected to build it into the code anyway.
0: Mm. So, I suppose um, the trick again, is that if, are, if it's what only one level...
1: About ...is that people think about where they put their constraints. They understand there's more than one place to put them and they make a conscious yeah. decision about where they put them based on the um, on the ease of changing and the likelihood that they will change. Mm.
0: Yeah, and I suppose one of the, the problems is that, again, if you do it at multiple levels, you can easily end up with... Uh, Maybe conflicting is the wrong word, but uh, overlapping (laughs) constraints or something?
1: Well, well, quite. quite. I mean, the Mm. the enforcement of the business rules, if you like, through the system is is a crucial part. Uh, Some people would say almost the only part of, of what an application is. An application is ultimately the instantiation of a bunch of business rules. And, and the question is, where are you going to put those rules? Good design is you put them in one place, or if you're going to have redundancy, that redundancy is deliberate in order to achieve some end. It isn't something that just arises because you haven't got a good design. So to me, clean design means the rules held in one in one place, um, and you know, and if you're put if you're putting it in to, to cross check it, then that that cross checking is, is part of a deliberate. Um, uh, choice based on what you, which you perceive as uh, is potential weaknesses in the application or whatever, not just oh we did it twice because you know we thought belt and braces would be a good idea on that day. Well, that's the way that program
0: mm. will work, so you always check this. So, I, um, tiering, too, the, yeah. I was going to say in tearing the question is then also I suppose the. You know the real preference is to at what level does that actually live? And uh, um, I suppose one of the views that they've often had is that the, the if you put it in at the bottom level, like the database level, they're thinking, well, you know, no matter what the client is, at least you're not going to get around it.
1: Absolutely, I mean this is a very very strong enforcement of a business rule. If an insurance policy can only have one customer, you've only got one customer number on the insurance policy. You're going to need some very ugly coding or very hard work to get around and give someone two customers, to give a policy two customers. Mm. This is really built in a really intrinsic way to the application, which is great. I mean, and it also makes life simpler. If those rules are there, they're in a central place, the structures tend to look natural and easy to work with. But if that rule changes, you've got a very ugly situation on your hands. So the rule in general is if you can build the rule into data structure in a natural way, because... Some rules are not amenable to being put in data structure, but it, yeah. it can be built into the data structure in a natural way, and you're confident it won't change, and that's where it goes. Mm-hmm. And in many ways, yeah, the, the, the whole, you know, in many ways, what data modeling is about is finding those rules which can serve as the foundation of your application. Yeah. What are the rules that we think are stable enough that we can rely on? Let's build those the way we shape our data, and then let's build on that foundation. Mm-hmm.
0: So I suppose then you, you get the, uh, you, you have got the discussion then as to still the whole thing as to, you know, where the DBA starts and stops and where the modeler starts and stops in that sort of regard, um, and I, I suppose uh, also the, the fact that a modeler would tend to then have to be across the enterprise, not not application specific.
1: Well, um, not necessarily, I mean, I think it's a good mm-hmm. thing for a modeler to be across the price, because they can see what's being done in context, they've got an idea of questions of stability and so forth, because the, these are typically, the application is going to be expected, or at least the database is going to be expected to outlast the users that you're talking
0: to, you <laughs> know,
1: their interest is and often two or three outlasts years down the, all the track, applications
0: I mean. as well. Hmm.
1: That, that's exactly right. So, the, the data modeler is going to have to inform themselves as well as they possibly can about what is going to happen to those business rules in the model over the expected lifetime of that database. And I think one of the crucial things that you actually need upfront um, in your business case and so on is a statement of what the expected lifetime of this application is going to be. And it's certainly something that the data modeler needs to be qualifying what they do with and saying, You told me it's a seven year time frame. All right, I make, I've done my best to assess that this rule will be stable over the next seven years. But hey, if you want to run it for 15, who the hell knows? <laughs> um, so, so it's getting that sort of it's getting that sort of thing into place. Um, this this basic thing of where does the data modeler stop? My view is it's the the data modeler's responsibility is to use a, um, a technical term is the conceptual schema. I don't mean mm-hmm. conceptual model, I mean conceptual scheme, which, it, which is to say, if you can see it, it's the data model's responsibility. Let's leave views out of it for the moment. But if you can see it, mm-hmm. the base tables, if you like, that they are the data model's responsibility. And I believe that what the data model delivers is a default set, as it were, of base tables, which then, of course, when you start talking about performance, come up for negotiation, fair enough, but that's what they deliver and the data modeler, and any change to those that might happen for performance reasons, the data modeler is an absolutely key party because they're the person who's been privy to the decisions that were made to put that in place in the first
0: place. Yeah. Well, listen, that's so probably what is a the good da- point yeah, yeah. to just take... I was going to say that might be just a good point to take a break for a few minutes, and we'll be back after the yep. break. As well as community resources such as this podcast, SQL Under offer mentoring services and both private and public training options. If you need to get your project back on track, or if you need to get it off to a good start, why not give us a call? We have also recently introduced a series of online courses available in both Asia-Pacific and US-UK time zones. In particular, the first course that's offered in this series is Query Performance Tuning. You'll find details at www.sequeldownunder.com So, welcome back from the break. Uh, what I might do just for a moment, Graham? is just get to share anything you, you wish to about just yourself and where you live and just anything we get to know about you.
1: Okay, well, I said that I was doing a... I live in Melbourne, Melbourne, Australia, mm-hmm. and... Um, I said that uh, I'd been associated with Melbourne University for a little while. I'm in fact in the final throes of, uh, of finishing a PhD. So before Excellent. you rang this morning, I
0: was uh, thrashing away at that.
1: <laughs> yeah, so I'm only, uh, I think, a two and a half, three months away from submission, depending on what uh, what my supervisor says about the last draft.
0: Uh, so we're, congratulations, uh, that's really good. <laughs> I, I must admit, though, I, I, I've, I thought myself that the, the real work started once I submitted. <laughs>
1: Oh <laughs> uh, well, don't, don't I even <laughs> <want to> hear. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I certainly don't because it certainly did certainly felt like real work over the last uh, three or four years. But it's been mm. um, it's been in, on the data modelling stuff, so it was a real return to roots on that one. And yeah. I've been looking at data modelling. I've been looking at data modelling in practice, um, which nobody you know, m- most of the research has been using students as surrogate novice data modelers. So we know an yes. awful lot about how students. Yeah. Do data modeling and very very little about how practitioners do it. Yeah. So um, that's been uh, that's been really interested interesting. In fact, uh, when I spoke to the SQL um, users group in uh, in Brisbane, I got them to fill out a little survey so I can benchmark how they approach the database design task with how data modelers approach and all their, of their views mm-hmm. of the data modeling task. So that could be quite interesting in the end.
0: Yeah.
1: But yeah, yeah. I live I live yeah. in, yeah. in yeah. I've got but. A little bit of a, a share in a, a wine business and an antique shop and various bits and bobs ah. around the place, and cool. I do the occasional bit of consulting to support myself and the occasional mm. raid over to the uh, US or UK to uh, to do a bit of teaching.
0: And what what sort of wine though you uh, got got a small share in? Oh
1: well, there's a, it's a big share. <laughs> it's a 50% ah, okay. share, um, but it's a it's a small it's a very small business. Um, we we distribute Pinot Noir. Um, so he specialised in that. A good friend, a uh, wine buff, and that was his dream. He used to be a data modeller, and uh, he decided that he had enough he of that. He
0: saw the light.
1: And, uh, <laughs> he saw the light and decided there was, uh, that there was better to take to drink. So uh, <laughs> www.pinotnow.com.au www.pinotnow, p wow. i n o t n o w dot com dot au is the website. And um, we, he's been doing very well. Um, thanks to not having a, a physical retail outlet, which keeps the costs manageable. Mm. But I'm just, uh, I, just so to, I just get to just drink the stuff <laughs> <laughs>
0: it it it's kind of intriguing actually, the number of people I see that have been so long in the industry and often when they uh, they really move, they really move to <laughs> to something like completely different yeah so and uh often often have to just check again if if that's really where they said they were going <laughs> you know, so, yeah, so. oh yeah. Drop out totally into a into a totally different field, yeah. And I think it is a bit of an issue because uh, people do tend to get a bit of burnout and things like that over a long period, sometimes in this industry. And uh, sometimes I think they they just love the idea of not having to study and learn almost every day of their lives and uh, drop out to something that doesn't require that. So. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah. Well, I think it's sometimes but, the people who don't study and learn who <laughs> need to drop out.
0: Yes, indeed but listen so what what are the what are some of the other main bloopers you see with um, with models that people come up with I mean apart from the primary key well, thing.
1: okay well look I think you see bloopers at different ends of the scale you see novice type bloopers um, and the novice type bloopers uh, oh, they 're everything from um often very very literal sort of modelling. So whatever, whatever the user said better turn into an entity and so on. Mm. And it may not be a particularly well-formed entity. Yeah. The, okay, the worst models I see from novices are from people who've never been on the database side. So they're actually drawing things that are sort of impressionist view of, of the world, which are never really implementable as a database design. And they're typically the ones mm. who say, oh no, conceptual modelling only goes so far and then the DBA takes over. And the poor old BBA has actually got the job of doing the job. Um, it's a bit like someone saying, you know, I'll sketch a plan to my house, but I won't you know, have any responsibility for the thing being structurally sound or, you know, mm-hmm. or workable. That's the job of the builder.
0: Yeah.
1: And, and right. the poor old builder says, oh, i tell you, take a deep breath. Another person has designed their own house and didn't even you know, get the thing to scale, etc., etc. Mm-hmm. So there's a whole raft of things that come from those sorts of people, a mishmash of business concepts which has no integrity as being the basis for database design
0: um, actually i so, see the opposite end of that where i see object guys who view absolutely everything you know in some hierarchy and and they look at the base object in the hierarchy and they think well you know the way i'll model that is that you know there'll be one table in the database and 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 that's it. And and what they'll do is add columns to that table for every possible attribute of all the all the descendant or, or um, children classes or whatever from that. And I mean that's the opposite. Yeah. They Look, end up I, I other yeah.
1: I don't want to comment too much about um about OO design, except to say hmm. that these these most of, most of the time the persistent data is going to end up in a relational database. And people say, oh, we don't need data modelers because they're using an um, OO or whatever. And I just say, okay, if you're going to put this stuff in a relational database, is someone going to cast an eye over this ultimate relational database design and say, is it any good? <laughs> is, it, is it well-formed? It's still a rational database. So mm-hmm. um, th- there's, another, there's another group of problems that I see which come from the expert data modelers. And... And sometimes expert data modelers um, have become insensitive to the needs of the applications people and even the users. And what they tend to do, two things are almost opposite ends of the spectrum. One is they try to capture every rule in the data model without thinking about the idea that rule might even live outside it. So the data models become yeah. very complex, very semantically rich, um, but very hard to run with. And the alternative is that they build very generic data models that can handle just about everything. They've hardly got any business rules in them. Um, you have party, party role, party relationship, you know, business agreement, all these sorts of very high-level entities. And all, well, all they've done is, is shift the responsibility for rules to the applications people mm. uh, who then have to build up the code. Um, and often those sorts of models can be incredibly hard to actually work with in practice.
0: So um, actually, one one thing so, yeah. that fascinated me the other day that I I think also it, it was unrelated to databases. It was actually on .NET Rocks. Mark Miller was talking about when he looks at object design, uh, he yep. has his own little set of rules in his head for telltale signs of things that need to be different classes. So you know if if he sees a, a class where somebody starts adding Boolean properties, and and often the Boolean yep. property quite changes how the thing works you know this is the sort of thing that makes him go hang on this probably ought to be two things you know not 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 something with a split personality and i'm sort of often see that in table designs and things as well where people end up with a table that does some particular function and then they'll start adding a completely unrelated function to even the one column for example so you know it'll be this column you know, if this is an invoice, this is actually an invoice number. But but sometimes it's not. It's one of these things over here. But but it's a single column.
1: Yeah, I, I think um I think the classic example of that amongst sometimes amongst quite experienced data modelers, but particularly amongst people who've discovered generalisation for the first time, um, the classic thing is inappropriate generalisations. Things that just happen to have some similar behaviour. Um, and suddenly someone has this flash of insight in the shower and says, oh, look, a person in agreement, you know, they're both things that we can change, <laughs> Let, Let's call yes. it a changeable object or something like that. Um,
0: <laughs>
1: and you, in any generalisation, you've got to look at the utility of it. Not just is this is this beautiful, is it elegant, does it have some level of truth, because I think human beings, we tend to see patterns, we tend to see the similarities rather than the differences. Mm. And you say, well, yeah, you know, but okay, they're similar in some ways, but that doesn't mean they necessarily have to be lumped together. Now, what are the differences? Okay, here's something that I think people could do a lot more of in data modelling, and I haven't even got on my hobby horse today, but my particular hobby horse is that I believe that data modelling is design. It's not a, a one-right-answer sort of discipline, and that shouldn't come as any surprise to somebody who's come from a database design background because they call that design, they know there's more than one answer, but um, data modelers don't always agree with that view, and it's a controversial yeah. view to have in the data model community. What I say is, if you come up with what you think is a pretty good data model, I think it does you a lot of good to then try to come up with another one that's different. Because I don't, I think too often we get anchored and we don't consider alternatives. We don't consider there might be yes. more than one way of doing it. We sort of center on one way, say this must be the right answer. You know, if it doesn't work, I've got to, you know, throw my hands up in the air or I've got to fight and defend it. Um, mm. I, I was involved in a project not that long ago where I came up with a data model for somebody. It was only a, a fairly small project. And I, I thought about it. I thought, well, there's another way of doing it, which I don't like very much, but it's probably the more obvious way of doing it. Mm. So I did the obvious model as well, the one that probably a probably a more experienced model would have come up with. Yep. And I looked at both of them and I put them in front of the user and we talked through all the implications. And in the end, we went to the second one, to the obvious one. Yeah. And I could see all the reasons. I, I didn't feel hurt. <laughs> it was, yeah. that was the better answer to go with.
0: Pretty much brings us up to time. I, I know uh, we're in a little bit of a tight time frame today. And, but what I might do is thank you and say, look, uh, where can we see you or what's coming up or what things have you got happening in your future?
1: Well, what's coming up? Um, most of my engagements are in the States. Um, I am doing an advanced data modelling class um, on the 5th of April in um, in Melbourne. Um, but aside from that, if you if you want to know a little bit more about what I'm about and thoughts on data modelling, probably the best thing and cheaper than an advanced data modelling class is to grab a copy of Graham Witt's and my, my book, um, Data Modelling Essentials, which has been doing very nicely for us over the last year or so since the third edition came out. Um, great. Uh, but most, most people like the book because it's reasonably readable. I mean we go we go into a lot of these yeah. sorts of issues that I've talked about, but if you want a, a reasonably easy introduction, it's not too bad, I don't think. That's great.
0: Well, listen, Thank you again, Graham. Have a great Christmas and we'll talk to you again soon.
1: Thanks very much, Greg. Cheers. Great. Thank you.